are entering the take-up, placed together when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and the managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Today, we are processing Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. <laughs> it's my pick for our new series, Queer Coded. First, we're going to cover some new films. And finally, we've got one more thing. Andrew? Yeah. I'm a whittle sick, if you couldn't tell. So I apologize to everyone. It just for... makes you gives your baritone a richer, richer note, I think. It moves my baritone to my nose. And so <laughs> it's that much more pleasant to listen to me. All right. Hit me with that dumb money. Dumb money. Here's the advantage of me being sick is that I've also taken some Dayquil. So who knows what I'm going to say? <laughs> Anything could pop out of your mouth. <laughs> Dumb money. Game yeah. stop. Not stopping. No. <laughs> so this is a new film by Craig Gillespie of Itania fame. Um, Lars and the Real Girl. Recently of Corella, whatever you thought about that film. <laughs> Wait, I didn't uh, even put those two things together. Yeah, I didn't. Know. Oh my god, Craig Gillespie, Corella, also the fright, the well-regarded Fright Night remake, mm. and a somewhat less well-regarded Pam and Tommy Lee miniseries that came out last year. I think it was not great, from what I hear. Did not know there was one person behind all of these. <laughs> all of these things. Anyway, this is his actually uh, a film that I pretty pretty much liked. This is a film about. It's not the kind of concept that like if you pitched it. It doesn't sound like particularly cinematic. It's about the GameStop shorting scandal slash crisis slash movement. I don't know even know how to describe it, but and I'm not going to attempt to describe the financial specifics of it here. Just if I say the film takes place in 2020, 2021, when a sort of individual investor, and by that mean regular Joe Schmoes who put like $100, $1,000 here into the stock market in specific stocks rather than being, you know, <clears throat> Wall Street titans, developed a fixation or obsession with stock for the failing mall <laughs> video game store GameStop and started to sort of like buy it up and hold on to it and, and drive the price up, which had the effect of... Um, creating a financial uh, crisis for a lot of quote unquote Wall Street wizards, hedge fund manager types who had shorted that it had basically been betting on that the stock was going to continue to fall and do poorly. This the, the business was headed for bankruptcy. And it's sort of a, you know, David versus Goliath story. I, I, I quite liked it. It's a very tight film. It's only like 100 minutes long, very crisply edited, jumps around between a lot of different characters. It focuses on the principal players, but they also do some interesting stuff where they're jumping around to all these individual investors all over the country, you know, letting like <clears throat> American Ferreira and Anthony Ramos and a couple other people like play these everyday Joes who decided to follow this one guy played by Paul Dano, who was sort of boosting the stock and trying to get people interested in it, not necessarily because of its, because it was a good financial investment, but because it was a sort of way to, eventually it became a snowball, became a way to stick it to Wall Street and it continued to hold, continue to hold, continue to hold onto the stock and not let it go. So it's it's lively. You know, I think in a year when we got a slightly better sort of tech slash corporate world film in BlackBerry, which I liked a lot, this one sort of sort of a lesser cousin to that, I think, but it's still... A, tight little crowd pleaser maybe gillespie's most focused film in a long time like he he very clearly like knew what he wanted to do with it and the writers very clearly had a vision for it and wanted to tell that tight little story really fast give us some sympathetic characters give us some scumbag hedge fund managers to boo to boo and hiss it works very well from that premise any mvps here i think something that happens a lot with these kinds of films that have this great um scope ambitious scope Mm -hmm. that uh, performances get lost or characters become uh, summations of characters instead of people. Yeah, I, I don't I won't speak to the the book that this is adapted from. It's adapted from a book called The Anti-Social Network. And I won't speak to its faithfulness to the how the present the events are presented there or to the real world historical events. They do do some interesting things where they're cross cutting the this was all taking place sort of at the height of COVID. So 
the congressional hearings on the fallout for it happened via Zoom. And they so Seth Rogen, for example, is playing one of the hedge fund managers, and he ends up getting spliced into actual footage of the Zoom call where, you know, AOC is over here and here's Seth Rogen pretending to be this guy and they can kind of keep it together in real time. Then, of course, they do the thing at the end where they show you that everybody's real, what they really look like. I don't know. It, it, it's a I think it's a solid over. I mean, Paul Dano's kind of carrying it, being the sort of goofball, slightly not aware of how dorky he is guy, but also aware of like what what's been building behind him. He's a, he's obviously sort of the lead, and I think he he does a really good job in it. Anthony Ramos is a lot of fun. I've loved him since in the in the Heights. I wish he was sort of people were putting them out here as a leading man because I think he's really funny and charming. Mm-hmm. There's a I think what sums up this movie is there's a scene where Anthony Ramos has to explain to his elderly Latino father what a dank meme is. Which I, <laughs> which I think sums Me up next. Like, which I think sums up what like everything about this this film. If you find that concept funny in and of itself pete davidson is here doing the pete davidson thing maybe in right. a, even, even a higher degree of scumbag than he usually is which i find I, i'm a, i wasn't a i don't watch snl i never saw his other movies and stuff so i like him in small doses and i liked him here so very good and that's going to be opening here soon right it's, it should be open now i think it just opened well let mm-hmm. me attempt to explain to you what Jean-Luc Godard's final film trailer of a movie that will never exist, Phony Wars. Yeah. I loved it. Unquestionably, there will be a lot of conversation, if there is any conversation about this, about whether or not it should be considered like his final work or well, it's well, brief. Back, it's back, back me up on this. Like, Explain the, the origin of it or the how it was yeah. assembled. So Godard, within the, the the actual text of the thing, is talking about pre-production and, on a film called Phony Wars. And you do see, of the sort of footage that you see that is more traditional filmmaking, you do get cuts to what might or might not have been footage from that film. and But the bulk of it, is sort of like postcards, specifically the back of Canon photo paper Hmm. and little collages of words, pictures, ideas that as they begin to add up, shows a director who's very late in life wanting to sort of return to a different kind of filmmaking that he'd been absent from in a while. But when he had finally decided to shuffle off, in which, as we all know, he did, Godard died via assisted suicide, and this is all very much a part of it. This is, you know, it's not as sort of morbid as calling it a suicide letter to (laughs) his audience. But it is sort of a last will, and it's very playful. You have your Godardian like strikes of operatic music, and calling it calling attention to itself. But within it, there's some very kind of almost sweet moments, which if you saw something like the image book, you could tell that he had sworn off any sort of sentiment that had creeped into any of his work at any point. But yeah, it's it's 20 minutes long. I started the Webster film series and smartly programmed it with a, a, a what I would call a subpar documentary about Godard's work. And I really only say that because the film chose to excise the last 20 years of his work after sort of painstakingly going through the rest of his career. And mm-hmm. it's a move that I still don't understand. Actually, I've there's a lot of people who... That's interesting because there's a lot of people who really who really love like his 21st century work. Exactly, myself included. I'm sort of like any Godard's bring it on, bring it mm-hmm. to me. Um, so of course I yeah I really loved trailer of a movie that will never exist, Pony Wars. <laughs> now um, but wait, let me ask one question though. So you're saying did he sort of before he passed did he approve the release of this in this version or did he this is his handle film. this? Yes, yes, he did make this quote-unquote trailer of the film. And of course, you know, it's not just about the pre-production of a film. And let me show you. It it is like 
sort of a mini essay about <laughs> his <laughs> philosophy of life. And so I would recommend it. I mean, especially if you're a fan of short filmmaking as it is and experimental filmmaking. But if you're a major fan of Godard, you know, I'm probably not telling you anything different. Here. Well, I mean, it sounds like it has a deliberateness to it. I mean, like a lot of yes. quote unquote films that live in that fuzzy boundary of final film, like uh, Eyes Wide Shut or Orson or, or Welles one recently, like they live in that hazy zone where you're sort of like, is this really their final film or is this somebody else's? But I like the idea of that intentionality there, that he he knew that, you know, he didn't have a lot of time left and that he wanted to deliver something with the pieces that he had. Well, and he knew that because he's planning it. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. It, again, it it is a sort of like a, a final missive to his right. audience. But it doesn't necessarily. Submissives. But it does sounds like it doesn't necessarily have that morbidity. He's not dwelling on no. his own. No, no, and in fact, the, the kind of the same way that it it seemed like he he left us was with a, you know, a wink and a middle finger. <laughs> a wink and a middle finger. Right. All right, now to something completely different. What's that Hulu horror thing? What's yeah. It called. No one will save you, which is I know uh, that. Are you sure that's not the final John Luke Guitar film? <laughs> that does sound like it could be right? a, it could be a title. <laughs> now, this is a film of sort of sci-fi thriller from Brian Duffield, who made a I think his only other film is a film called Spontaneous, which was about teenagers who blow up oh, spontaneously. Nice. But this is his second feature. So, and I'm not sure why this is a 20th century Fox joint under the umbrella of Disney. I don't know why it didn't go to theaters. It feels like the kind of thing that might've done well in the hinterlands of early fall here, but this stars Caitlin Deaver, Daver of Booksmart and unbelievable fame. Who I like a young actress who I like a lot. And the logline of the movie is sort of interesting. So she plays this woman, Bryn, whose mother has passed away. She lives in a small town in unspecified middle America in this beautiful Victorian farmhouse, Instagram worthy cottage core Victorian farmhouse all by herself. And she seems to be completely shunned by the town. She, for reasons that don't become clear until literally the end of the film, she's sort of regarded as a pariah. Like, and I mean like down to people spitting in her face and sending her crap through the mail and that kind of thing. Like it's, it's very dire. And I'm not really spoiling anything because I think this is literally in the movie poster and the log line of the film. In the by the 15, 10 to 15 minute mark, aliens show up in flying saucers oh. and attack her okay. house. <laughs> and the whole thing is sort of done as a pseudo real-time horror action sci-fi thriller captivity thing where she's trying to avoid being captured by the aliens. And they're very stereotypical aliens. They're you know, sort of grays with big heads and psychic powers and they're in literal flying saucers with tractor beams. It's it's the sci-fi components are very conventional in what we might expect in a sort of post X-Files world, but it's all played in a very, it's not played in a particularly like goofy key. It's played in almost frightening key. It's, it has a lot more in common with signs or uh, we, we just talked about Toby Hooper's invaders from Mars than it does with, you know, kind of a goofy sci-fi comedy. It's interesting. I mean, like the premise is that she's completely alone already, completely isolated. And then she has to rely on herself as this alien inv invasion unfolds over what appears to be about a day and a half or two days. And the townsfolk are no help. They slowly get sort of absorbed into the collective invasion of the body snatcher style. And they become not only not, not helpful to her, but actually hostile to her. She has to avoid them. And We've, I like the way that the film sort of evolves our understanding of how the aliens are going about their business. Like we don't see everything right. We see the aliens really early, like in the first 10 minutes of the movie, but we don't see their modus operandi completely until the end. Like we get to see little pieces of it. And we gradually learn how they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's kind of neat. I, I don't think the film does anything thematically that's as interesting as it thinks it's doing with like, oh, she has to be rely on herself and she has this guilt and trauma that she has to come to terms with in order to rely on herself properly and et cetera, et cetera. It's maybe more interesting formally than thematically because the whole film has almost no dialogue in it. Um, hmm. Because she's, this woman is alone all the time and she's not really a talk to herself out loud kind of person. There's like maybe a few mumbled lines in the entire film. For those of us who are, you know, art film lovers, side lovers, we wouldn't, this isn't an unusual thing to us, but right. I think for like a mainstream 
pop entertainment, it is kind of interest, an interesting formal choice. And it doesn't, some people are saying that it feels strained. I don't really think it feels strained. I, I, it took me like a good 40 minutes to realize, oh, this movie has no dialogue. It's not just that this movie is a relentless movie where a woman is trying to escape aliens and not make any sound. It's that it literally has no dialogue in it other than some ums and errs and mumbled lines. So I think I that's remember, kind of interesting. I don't know if this is totally off base, but the Amazon Prime film called The Vast of Night, it is recalling that, yeah. even though that film is kind of a lot more arch sounding. It recalls I mean, that Twilight movie's like the Zone opposite and... because it's so talky. It's like a, you know, mammoth script or something. Aaron Sorkin script, I should say. It's so talky. But yeah, like kind of that lo-fi. I, and I, these are the kind of alien stories I actually tend to read. I don't really care about aliens blowing up the White House, you know. I'd like to see sort of like on the on the ground since signs, I think we've we've established that like alien stories are way more interesting when we're just seeing ordinary people reacting to their very small window on these events. You know, Spielberg's War of the Worlds kind of does the same thing. And I, I really I like if we're going to do an alien movie, I kind of like that angle. And Caitlin Deaver is pretty amazing in it. She, again, she doesn't really talk. So she pretty much has to do the whole movie with her body language and expressions and very convincing uh convincingly playing a woman who is dealing with completely unfathomable nonsense coming at her from every direction <laughs> which so, is all of us all the time no. yeah <laughs> so i enjoyed it it's on who's streaming on hulu exclusively on hulu right now well we got more spooky season stuff we're starting a new mini series yeah and the title Woo! it's a title <laughs> queer coded queer coded something like that but now, see, now I can really do something like that. Mm-hmm. And we're kicking it off with my pick, and that's Robert Aldridge. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte. The winners of five prior Academy Awards and 21 Academy nominations now bring you Suspense, unequaled in the history of the screen. Shock that will leave you speechless. Charlotte, what have you done? Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. All right, so we're on to a new miniseries. It's called Queer Golden. And if you look at the title of this episode, you'll understand why I'm saying it like that. These are horror films that have queer leanings, queer readings, queer audiences. They're not maybe expressly interested in queer ideas, but they're buried in there. And we wouldn't do this because we could do just straight up like queer themed horror films. And there's quite a bevy of those to talk about, but I think we're more interested in talking about films where these we're sort of buried deep so that we could get into maybe some older films, some more obscure films, and maybe some cult films that you didn't know that we queers, and I'm speaking for myself, we queers have a little angle on. <laughs> so we're going to have a couple guests come on and they've got their picks. And then I've got a pick that maybe, I don't know, Andrew, you can tell me like from the outside if mm-hmm. you can project queerness into it other than it being a supreme camp object (laughs) i think there are two there's a character a couple a relationship between two characters Mm -hmm. that you could probably read into as a queer relationship but the reason i have picked robert aldridge's whatever happened to baby jane Mm follow-up hush hush sweet charlotte is this was a seminal film. Really? A gay boy. Really? A gay boy in West Plains, Missouri, who had AMC and only AMC. <laughs> what? Is this weird for a little kid to love? No, I don't think so. Especially not a little gay kid. A little kid, kid figuring out he's gay, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let me back up, though, and ask. We're not just doing queer films. We're doing queer horror films. So this is the first time I've ever seen this. It doesn't strike me as particularly horror-ish. It has horror elements. I figured you might lob that at this. It has a Southern Gothic element, obviously. Sure. There's a whole Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner vibe coming off this, stink coming off this movie, like the fetid Spanish moss of a rotting plantation. But Well, well before we go into it, let, let's, let's set up the plot. 
And then we can get into its horror horror bona fides. Mm -hmm. So it is about a... A debutante? Thanks. Southern Belle. Uh, A Southern Southern Belle. It is about a Southern Belle, a debutante who decades ago in the film's um, cold open intro, we learn had an affair with a married man who is played by Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern mm-hmm. having a stellar 1964 getting murdered by a lot of great blonde ladies <laughs> after Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. Spoiler alert for Marnie. <laughs> another perfect and seminal Josh Ray movie. So that she is now 40 some years later regarded as like haunting her plantation home. She mm-hmm. lives alone save for her housekeeper, Velma, who's been there since the very beginning, played by St. Louis native. (laughs) I was going to call her Aggie Moorhead because that's what we call her in my home. One of my very favorite actresses. But Agnes Moorhead not necessarily doing a typical Agnes Moorhead. Like she's in kind of in the Thelma Ritter mode here. I don't know what the like, how to describe it, but like with a dose of hunchbacked, (laughs) <laughs> squinty well, eyed she she's certainly she's working in a mode that i believe would become more popular because of these two films right and we we have to talk we will talk exploitation or psycho <laughs> bitties here in a moment so via i guess eminent domain <laughs> the state or the county is looking to bulldoze this property mm. it's not property it's property mm-hmm. and displace was Charlotte and of course Velma and then thinking maybe she can get some help an old friend played by Joseph Cotton helps Charlotte's cousin come in played by Olivia de Havilland Mm -hmm. and really they're there to help get Charlotte out of the house but maybe they have another plan as well Mm -hmm. this is a gaslight movie well there's like three layers right I think yeah. that's important to point out. There's the layer that they're presenting to Charlotte, which is, we're here to help you. And being sort of vague and nonspecific about it and kind of gently bringing up the the repeated, you've got a deadline, you're going to have to get out. What can we do for you? Then there's the like the more mercenary face that they present to the outside world, which is, we're here to get her out. We recognize that she's not mentally stable anymore. And we're, we're, we're the all business, clear-headed relatives and friends who are going to get her out. And then there's, as you say, maybe a more insidious layer beneath that where they're trying to get their claws into her, what remains of the estate. Yeah. And so is this a horror film? This is a film that has a hatchet murder in the first five minutes. Cleaver murder, let's be clear. A cleaver, a meat cleaver murder. Yeah, which is maybe even more weird. It has, for 1964, plenty of blood. Mm-hmm. It's got some some pseudo ghostly some hauntings going on mm-hmm. it's definitely a horror film it, it, contextually 1964 it's a weird phenomenon going on though because your position right before the major studios are pretty much changing the way they do business because the world is changing and so you have this new modernity coming in with the 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 rating system, the MPAA getting formed, and of mm-hmm. course the culture is changing. So right before this, what you see is some content that wouldn't have appeared before, like the the sort of the blood and the severed body parts, and all of this is starting to creep in. But it's also the last gasp of like studio filmmaking, even though these were independently produced. And when I say these, I'm talking about whatever happened to Baby Jane. Whatever happened to Baby Jane came a couple of years before this, and this was immediately put into production. And that is a film that is more explicitly about the the kind of epoch, you know, changes happening in Hollywood mm-hmm. and what gets left behind. But this one is sort of like, what if Baby Jane became a movie star? again and then starred in this but so what a very small subgenre that ends up forming out of all this is like a prestige horror film Mm -hmm. this film was nominated for seven academy awards yeah it's distributed by 20th century 
right? Yeah, but it was produced by Aldridge's company. Which is interesting because ba- Baby Jane was a big hit, wasn't it? Huge. Like you you would think that it produced through seven produced through seven arts. So it was kind of weird that he wasn't able to sort of write his own check after the after that. Well, I think that's what he did is you know taking it under his own wing, he's able oh, to make okay. it an Aldridge production, mm-hmm. therefore maximizing <laughs> his profit. Right. Yeah. And he was such a he was a smart businessman. I mean, he was independently producing and kind of skewing the contract system and doing his own thing and that results in like the joan crawford starring autumn leaves which is an excellent movie or kiss me deadly or just grateful he's like a a quote-unquote journeyman director who is also an auteur i think andrew saris has him in the far side of paradise and he calls out baby jane and hush hush sweet charlotte as being sort of anomalies because he's a, a male director who's concerned with masculinity, but these films are not concerned with that to an extent. They're concerned with how do we get these women to fight? Well, so not just fight, just, has... screech, just screech and leer and growl oh, and like God. glower at each other. So this movie has like, has a lot of plot, like, but it's pretty simple. It's like, it's, and I think it's always kind of clear that something else is afoot. Like, kind of has to be because otherwise it's a pretty thin film. It's like she's either going crazy or they're going crazy or someone won't believe her. So there there are elements in this film that I feel could have been cut. Like both this and Baby Jane are long films for their genre and, time, genre and time. And there are subplots in this one in particular that feel like Baby Jane's a little more maybe I think focused on that core dyad in the, yeah. the, the tensions between them. This one has like there's subplots about the British guy who's showing up to like ostensibly to tour the house or maybe interview her, and it's not clear that he has clear pure motives. There's... He doesn't really have a great function in this. There no. is that really. It's kind of a sweet scene where he comes to visit Charlotte. And she has a different response to him than what she, typically she'll fly off the handle and bring out the shotgun. Get <laughs> and she has a response to him like, oh, you're a fan of mine? And it's kind of a sweet scene. But other than that, I agree with you. It's like, what function do you have here? You don't really serve any other than to be like a commentary on the sort of outsized response to well, right. there's some proto like true crime, like, uh-huh. like part of I, I don't know that he has a good narrative function, but he has a good setting function and grounding it in the real world as well, because both him and then there's like a scumbag New York reporter, crime, right. crime reporter who are kind of there to be the representatives of the different poles of the true crime world as it was interested in this kind of thing in 1964. And not being published like on the front page of the New York Times, but being published in these like dedicated crime magazines and crime circulars that would talk about the, these and like lurid, these crimes in lurid detail and print scandalous photos of the murderers and victims and so forth. But you can like trace that back to, I guess, to like, you know, the gangster era as well, like the obsession with getting the shot of the gangster machine gun to death over his pasta, that kind of thing. I, while I love Olivia de Havilland in this movie, like mm-hmm. I think she is so fucking good in it, better than she has any right to be. You can see to what you're talking about, Joan Crawford, who was going to play this part, who started playing this part until she got sick or not like a week into filming. And then eventually they're like, fuck Joan Crawford, just replace her. You could see the the meta story of baby Jane creeping into this and how it would relate to the true crime sensation or the, mm. the idea of having these, you know, fallen stars coming back into these big budget sort of seedy under, like into the seedy undertow. So, I although I just don't think I would go without Olivia to have one in this movie. I think it's, she's just so delicious in it. Every move and the, she makes. And the funny thing is, like now, I think there's this it, there's this tendency to sort of lump her in with 
Joan Crawford and Betty Davis because of her presence in this film. She was only yeah. 48 when she made this movie. She wasn't that yeah. old. Over the hill for an actress, a classical era actress, I guess, which is part of like the sub sub commentary of this entire genre, right? Like the idea that these actresses needed to do this kind of work to get the kind of high profile roles that they that they wanted to do. But she's she kind of sweeps in and you almost have a feeling initially, at least I did initially, because I, because I, knowing who she is and I'm sort of waiting for her to show up as they're talking about the cousin who's going to show up in this film. It's like, okay, I know that that's going to be Olivia de Havilland because I saw her name in the credits. I almost expected her to kind of swoop in as the sort of representative of a more prestigious kind of film or genre, like not a <laughs> Like class up the joint a bit. Or that she would like a, there would be a dissonant note to her presence, but she kind mm. of and she does come in very sort of buttoned down and calm voiced and initially, but like she lets herself be revealed, the icy heart inside of her be slowly revealed, and she comes she come comes to embrace the material, which is interesting. Yeah, and by the time really the the turn happens, and they yeah full spoilers, but you know, 70 year old movie or whatever, mm. what, what six year old by the time the film becomes a pseudo remake of Diabolique. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say that she's, she's just off the handle too, but like still in her reserved, like old Hollywood studied way, she's just covered but, in dirt and sweat. And <laughs> But just shy, but just shy, especially right at the end, like just shy of maniacally cackling at her own evil. Oh. <laughs> like, like it is and really, it, she really it, becomes like she really embraces her villainy in this movie. It always is a good plan until they decide to talk about the plan. <laughs> I do love this, which is, seems like a very modern screenplay device mm-hmm. of uh, Betty Davis in her the, really the first scene in 1964, pushing that flower pot off of the balcony and mm-hmm. it just missing. I believe it's George Kennedy, yeah. the, con- the construction people. But then in very, I don't know, uh, save the cat fashion, that's the thing she uses to kill Olivia de Havilland and Joseph Cotton in the end. Yeah. It's just it's just kind of sweet and perfect. <laughs> and I wish that the film ended there, but I think it's more prescriptive of the times and that this thing is really long. It it could probably be twenty minutes or more shorter, and it would be like a crackling kind of grand guignol, like Southern Gothic thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. As far as its queerness, you can certainly read into the Velma and Charlotte relationship. Like, there's no reason why Velma should be sticking around, other than she has a fixation on mm-hmm. Charlotte but her like she protests too much yeah <laughs> like she looks seems as if she doesn't care for anything in the world but she is hyper protective over Charlotte mm-hmm. and then of course like the way that they talk about their youth the three of them mm-hmm. cough again the three of them talk about their youth like Joseph Cotton living to have on Betty Davis like they they were inseparable there's no real like insinuation that there was some sort of relationship between the the three of them I mean Mm -hmm. but (laughs) it, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to read that in there too I get the impression and this is just my reading of it that Joseph Cotton's character what was his name he's a he's a doctor isn't he in this film He's got like one of those such such a southern name. What is it like, Jedediah? No, that's Citizen <laughs> Kane. Drew Bayless. Drew, that's right. Because it's saying Drew, Drew. I get the impression that maybe he's sort of the the beaten hound dog, and and by that I mean like the what the things the things that cousin Miriam says to him implied that he's sort of been hanging around the two of them since they were teenagers sort of 
hoping maybe that they might give him the time of day, but I get the impression that maybe like that never really amount, never came to pass. And he's, yeah, he was the the third wheel in the right. relationship. He was the one that they they used to get things done, which is what's happening here too. Right. That he was the he was the guy who was like he wanted either Charlotte and or Miriam to pay attention to him in a right. way that was more than just like, oh, you're that annoying guy that hangs around and wants to get in our pants. Like, and here he is 40 years later and he's still kind of doing it. And he doesn't seem to register like that. That is a pathetic thing to be like, he he's, he's just fine with himself and where he is in this little town with his bro creamed hair and cigarettes. <laughs> well, so, so that's, that's where its queerness comes from. It's more of a cultural thing. It's more that this this film becomes a a camp cult classic, but even more cult than Baby Jane. It's like, of course, Baby Jane is a queer classic. Mm-hmm. There's academic studies and theory about, like, specifically the gay male, their response to old what golden era. Hollywood, mm-hmm. the star system, particularly female stars. And it's not like, you know, they aspire to be, fe- that's like old, disgusting, homophobic thought. It is more of a class idea. It's an aspirational idea. So within this, you've got several layers, layers of that, but you've got also this concept of camp. So you have this thing that is so incredibly genuinely performed and mounted that it doesn't know how incredibly ludicrous and ridiculous it is that the tension between those things becomes so sublime, so giddily like hardy to mm-hmm. chew on that it becomes something bigger than what it as it was originally conceived is bigger than life right so well tell tell me a little bit about like you talked about this being a seminal film for you like yeah. what so what were your sort of how did you understand this film as a kid when you're watching it and so uh, a lot of these ideas are sort of buried deep within it right mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's like everything I just said is why I related to it. <laughs> I must. I am just a, a small child. I'm probably eight, nine, ten. Mm-hmm. I believe I did see Baby Jane before I saw this, but this was a film that played on AMC back when AMC was essentially TCM. They didn't play commercials during films. Mm-hmm. They, whereas Turner largely had access to, you know, Warner Brothers, MGM, because Ted Turner bought those libraries by this point. AMC seemed to have access to like 20th Century Fox. So I would watch those films over and over and over again. This was one of the films that they would play. The very first film that I remember other than like the Wizard of Oz or things that I sort of responded to seemingly inside the womb. The first thing I ever kind of took a chance on, I think I've talked about this before, is a horror movie starring Betty Davis called Dead Ringer. Mm-hmm. Dead Ringers. It's the opposite of the Cronenberg. Just whatever. Mm-hmm. Where she plays twins and she does like a murder swap with her twin. So from that moment, it seems like I I have this interest in like the outsize, the horror, the extreme, the uh, extremists of life, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all of these ideas are are, and maybe I'm like sort of backwards engineering it into academic theory. It's entirely possible, but all of these ideas are ideas that come up in queer theory and queer media theory, specifically when. It, comes to like gay men mm-hmm. and i think this is over time becoming less and less true but you still see it in the response the diva response so the response to people like lady gaga or beyonce it's like these people who are bigger than life and and yet it's something to attain to to aspire to well uh, and like you say there's maybe some classes. maybe there's some there's some class there's a class like class coding or mm-hmm taste coding to say you know in 
1964 to say that your favorite actress is Betty Davis is already like a weird passe thing to say. What you right? It's 1964. Why are you saying? Shouldn't it be you know Paul Newman or something like? Right, right. Like it's a weird thing to say in 1964, and ten years later, it becomes almost unthinkable to say that Betty Davis is your face. Like that makes you a weirdo, quote unquote, weirdo who likes old movies, and that I can see how that identity becomes a, becomes an identity that can be sort of grafted onto or made a part of being a particularly being a gay man. I can, I can at least understand that. Yeah, it, it's part of this outsider culture, right? Like you're yeah. always going to sort of to respond to the outsiderness of anything in the varying degrees that it has definitionally. There's something about this film in particular, <laughs> if you want to get really cute about it, it's like skeletons in the closet. <laughs> and the the grandness of all of it being past its prime and buried well, deep in the past. And, and the Southern Gothic. To... Like Southern Gothicism yes. always to me has like a a queerness about it no matter what else is going on even yeah. if there's nothing queer in the text it always seems to have something yeah um, this is like tennessee williams by william castle like it, <laughs> right <it's>, yeah <laughs> but, but you mentioned that you mentioned diabolique which is what i was thinking of i mean like particularly the final like the third the final third of the film goes full oh, into yeah it's it, it's exactly that we're gaslighting her to 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 get her to kill herself it's not even what's clear what the end goal is to kill herself or just make have an accident or something like that they, they they're gonna get the money somehow i think it's that she would be get her committed bound of yeah of unsound mind and therefore they would become the arbiters of the state estate what well, one narrative tweak that like nitpick that I have is I don't think the the revelation about the truth about who the murder killed, yeah that, I don't think there. it really ends up being particularly interesting like I guess it 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 makes the film more tragic in some ways because Charlotte herself is sort of I don't guess she's not perfectly innocent but she's she's the innocent she's the completely wrong party here but it doesn't add it doesn't add like a whoa twist to the end of the movie in my mind it's just but, like oh okay no the wife no died. not at all because. All of that, like in the beginning, it's sort of obfuscated. Like it's it's it doesn't really make cinematic sense. Like you can tell no, something's being hidden in but, that first but, scene. But I do think it's interesting that I didn't register that immediately. It took me it it, it, it took me about maybe half an hour of the movie before I realized, before I thought back into the murder scene and go, he really didn't show us everything there, did they? But at the in the moment. My brain just says this is 1964, and this is how we shoot a meat cleaver murder to get around censorship. Yeah, like we, yeah, we yeah, cut yeah. away very, very stylistically, and we show, even then they're showing some graphic stuff. Yeah, the, it's, it's honestly off. pretty graphic. The blood on the dress, I love. I just love that image. Of her coming in, her coming in, and the the shadow over her face. But the there's a sexual subtext dress. there too, right? Like I she's absolutely. coming in in the white dress with blood all over the front of it and presenting yeah. herself not only to her father but to all the assembled socialites. Like there's something yeah. there. I don't. I don't I'm not going to venture what that thing is, but there's something there. Well, Andrew, when a a girl is becoming a woman, <laughs> yes, like. <laughs> but I do think I just like the little factoid that Sontag's notes on camp was published in 1964 mm -hmm. i'm like that's too on the nose it's <laughs> too on the nose like have i written this essay yet <laughs> like <laughs> sweet charlotte camp instead how about we just have a sweet charlotte camp like we and we can play like these people <laughs> Oh, God, like a LARP, like a LARP vacation where we uh -huh. have to play as a character. Do you think I can get all my D&D people, and I don't want to play D&D, but we can play a version of Hush Hush? <laughs> sure. They have those, like, murder evening things, too. Like, that could, could work within the context of a dinner murder mystery. Well, it, as if my personal experience as a little gay boy weren't enough to call this queer, mm -hmm. I have to tell you, it is a it is a universal thing. Because in 2015, you know where this is going because I showed you this yesterday. In 2015, a few famous drag queens got together and made Hush Up, Sweet Charlotte, a very poor parody version 
of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. That is a project by William Clift. I'm unfamiliar with the work of William Clift, but he makes quite a few, quite a bit of fare for like here TV. Do you know that? Like out TV, you know, yeah. like logo. Yeah. Like all that stuff. Starring, hold on. What are they? What are their drag names? What the hell? I don't know. <laughs> With like, not necessarily a murder's row, like a, a few familiar names. <laughs> Varla Jean Merman, who you might remember from, if you ever saw Charles Bush's Die, Mommy, Die, which was oh, yeah. kind of a small indie hit, um, which also like played up on hag horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but most importantly, most importantly, as uh, Velma, the housekeeper, instead of the great Agnes Moorhead, you get another of my favorite actresses, Mink Stoll <laughs> of Dreamland, of yeah. John Waters films. And yet, Mink Stoll cannot even parody what Agnes Moorhead <laughs> is up to in this film. Right. You can't get as big as that. I think maybe that's my problem. Like, I haven't seen it. You said you've actually watched this movie? I watched 15 minutes of it yesterday. <laughs> Wait, oh my God. You know how I was talking about fodder for Here TV? This is a Here TV production. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I guess this is my problem with it, as you described it to me. This is already a film that is operating in this, like, intensely campy mode. Not self-aware, but, like, it's, I don't know how you parody something like this. And I don't know how you parody yeah, something like point? Baby, Baby Jane it wasn't, either. It wasn't very funny. It It is it is the reverence for this film that these right. people have, that they would do this. And this is a, a phenomenon that happens a lot in, in drag culture where they will do not necessarily parody versions, just like straight up covers right. in drag of camp classics now yeah that that i can understand but to me like putting a drag queen in the betty davis role here like in order for that to be a parody you have to find that concept funny it has to be funny in that kind of like almost mean-spirited monty python way haha there's a a guy in a dress playing an aging old hag like yeah but but if it but if it's being done but if it's being done as like a straight tribute the way that people like reenact the big lebowski on the stage and things like that like that's something i can maybe get my head around a little more well what this performer ends up doing for the betty davis role well charlotte is just mimicry of what betty davis (laughs) is doing right which andrew is fine (laughs) because some of these line readings this accent like again <laughs> the word property property like yeah. she's putting her whole pussy in this I, and i'm looking at it right now the william clift he did this for baby jane too so oh, I, I, i'm not digging any deeper into these things but you know <laughs> it does help prove my point a bit well i mean that but that's betty i mean part of that is you can understand why betty became an icon maybe maybe became an icon to the core community right because because independent of all the other factors we're talking about her as an individual she's a go big or go home actress like, absolutely that is her i was reading there's a famous quote of her i think came from, came from an interview later in her life where she said you know people criticize my style by saying that i was going too big or too that i or that i was too much and that's because everybody else around me was doing too little. <laughs> like that, that's and that pretty much sums her up. I think, like myself, I do prefer Baby Jane to this, but I can see, I can see why you like this. I can see if it, this has a hot house, like I said, Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner vibe, Southern Gothicism and scandal and nasty. I mean, like there's also a and smiling so big while you're describing it. <laughs> There's also a, like a missed Havisham. Like there's a great expectations thing to having this woman in a another gay man, icon, a decaying manse, and she's still like swooning around in her. She still wears her, like her pigtail. Like the way that they put Betty in these like little girl hairstyles is really disturbing. And it's interesting because it's an inverse of Baby Jane too. Right, like, she's actually the kind of fucked up protagonist 
who's being acted upon as opposed to baby Jane, where she's serving rat for dinner. Right. She's serving I, I think, And again, I think maybe baby Jane, I just respond to more because I, I like the straightforwardness of it a little, like it's not as narratively, it doesn't have these sort of narrative curly cues on the, around the edges yeah. that I feel like it, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it earns its 130 minute runtime, but it earns it more than Charlotte does. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I, I would agree. I think a lot of it is, probably the aesthetic values inherent in the the hot house and yeah also agnes moorhead is there mm-hmm. i think she is mp i think she is mvp I mean, as much as i yeah. like betty davis i think she's mvp here is agnes moorhead. I, I would put it between her and olivia de Havilland, but every time agnes moorhead shows up on screen just the way I mean, she moves little... like she crooks her back and like walks mm. around like a cleaning haggish cleaning woman I don't even know well, how to like describe what she's doing in this movie. Muttering let's... under her breath. Every time it looks like they have a moves out of earshot, she's like muttering under her breath at her. Well, well, let's talk about the word. Let's talk about the the hag whore. Yeah, hag whore. Okay, Explo- so exploitation. These... Sure. Psycho bitties, which mm-hmm. all of these are like really sexist, misogynist terms. Mm-hmm. But that's what they're called. I can't help you. I, d- I don't know. But they're all films born from whatever happened to Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, Charlotte. Where it's a horror film. Mm-hmm. Past post-60s horror film. Starring an older uh, female Hollywood star. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of these. Not with this profile. Not and so over time, what happens? Correct. Over time, what happens is it's it's not on this kind of budget, right? Mm-hmm. They end up just being straight B pictures. It depends. We can dig into a few of them. But but I mean, you mentioned that I mean, like so again, even the names are have this like misogynist tinge to them. So how how do you suggest that like the modern film goer approaches these? Like, should we be snickering at them or should we be taking them as they are or like even when they're dealing with some really toxic, nasty stuff? Well, what's interesting about them is that on one hand, you have sort of exploitation, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's in the the title of the thing, exploitation. Mm -hmm. Exploitation of the star, the star body. And isn't it so thrilling and crazy to see the woman from now Voyager to now wield an axe and see them murder? Like, it's just, it's such a sign of the times. Well, not just like the idea of wielding an axe. It's the idea that we're going to let her be haggard and we're going to show her in this like porn nightgown with her long stringy gray hair of it is that they are now past their prime and let's play up on it and we're gonna just make them absolutely almost unwatchable i mean like that i I was reading a review of baby jane and sort of prep for this that i really liked and and not a contemporary review like a like a modern day retrospective on it and they made the point made a really good point about this job this narrow subgenre which is that yes they there isn't like a tinge of exploitation in the traditional sense, not not like exploitation cinema, but in the sense of like, are these actresses being exploited for, for cheap thrills and the, the leering of the audience at a once great classical era star. I made the point that it's a backhanded compliment, but it is a compliment that people want to see this. Like Betty Davis was a great actor. It wasn't that she was a bad actress. And now we want to see how low she's, like she never made it. She wasn't a baby Jane herself. Like she was a great actress, probably I think one of the most like nominated act Oscar yeah. performers of all time. Like there, it doesn't work. Like if you made this movie with a couple of no name 60 something actresses, it doesn't work. Not just because of the talent involved, but because the star is what's drawing you this, the prospect of seeing Betty Davis again after all these years in a lurid screechy <laughs> role like that it's a weird backhanded compliment to her star powers that she is why this movie works or why I mean, it's, 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 it's why it was successful you want to live 
in that tension like this so this is a star that you respond to but you you want them to work and you want them to work within the times and with that some of these films usher in more progressive ideas about femininity especially with feminine agency so on one hand you have the sort of exploitation of the star body on the other hand you have a more bodily autonomy with that so a few that come from it i want to talk about we do get the william castle version and william castle was infamous roadshow director who brought in like all of these like physical gimmicks like Mm -hmm. skeletons popping from the ceiling and the tingler literally buzzing your butt in the seat but he made this film in 1964 with joan crawford where his gimmick is Joan Crawford. Like, there's no axe flying from the ceiling. It's just that he cast Joan Crawford in this film. Betty Davis is like the queen of this. Um, Mm -hmm. she go on, she'd do The Nanny, which was another AMC staple, where she may or may not be a murderous nanny. (laughs) She's got Dead Ringer that I brought up earlier. There's one called The Anniversary that's like pseudo-hag horror. But she keeps doing it like almost until her death where she was in Larry Cohen's wicked stepmother. Yeah. Just in a ton of these Liz Taylor, Shelley Winters, Joan Crawford, Olivia de Havilland was in lady in a cage, which is like an early home invasion mm-hmm. movie with James Caan. Someone sneaking in to try to get her money, but she has an elevator in her home. She's stuck in it. So that's a fun one, <laughs> but it's, it, it, you know, it creeps into like, is Carrie hag exploitation? Because Piper Laurie's in there, you know, a, a former yeah. star. Piper Laurie's in one called Ruby by Curtis Harrington. There is a director who is not Robert Aldridge, who this was his bread and butter. And his he was a queer director. Mm-hmm. He made a lot of great experimental films outside of the Hollywood system, but within it, he worked with Anthony Perkins, who was another oh. one of these. And yes, it could it could skew male too. Film like Ruby, who what's the matter with Aunt Helen? A lot of them had like whatever happened to Baby Jane name spinoffs. Yeah. My favorite, other than some of the ones that we've talked about, my favorite is a film called Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. Okay. And this is Geraldine Page. She stars as a wealthy woman who keeps hiring housekeepers and bumping them off after she gets them to give all their money away to her. But she makes a mistake and she hires a Ruth Gordon. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. One year after Rosemary's Baby, winning an Oscar for Rosemary's Baby, gets hired by her but as it turns out she's investigating her Mm. missing sister this movie is so fucking funny and it is so delicious just watching these two actresses um really have a battle of wills for almost two hours it's my favorite among all of these a lot of these are crap movies but Mm. what you do get is a lot of fun watching these actors really stretch themselves uh, and do things they probably didn't expect to be doing. Uh, and I think, and I think this film, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, I think is a very well made film. Like Aldr- I don't, I'm not super familiar with Aldris. I've seen a couple of them, like Dirty, some of the big ones, like Dirty Dozen and so forth. But this is like him working. I mean, 1964. He this is like Psycho. He's making, he's choosing black and white not only for budgetary reasons, but it creates a definite vibe. And he has mm. these like. Again, the Southern Gothic look, like the way that the interiors of this house just look like like vast and shadowy. And there's there's almost these like expressionist shots of Charlotte sort of mooning around in her nightgown in confusion. This she's hearing sounds, people whispering to her and shattering glass and so forth, and sounds of the harpsichord tinkling away her song. I don't know. Like I again, I'm I love a good gaslighting story. Like tinging on horror story where I don't where I don't necessarily know what's going on. And maybe I'm an idiot because I I genuinely didn't know what was going on until like the last 20 minutes of this movie. I was like, I 
some parts of it like didn't scan right for me like the way that Miriam reacts to the hand like the disembodied hand and cleaver that there it is so chock full of red herrings they're that cheating a little they bit don't there, make right? sense yeah they make absolute why would she react that way she's by herself Didn't yeah there's nobody else in the room thing there <laughs> it reminds me i mean it, it's not it's not an iron tight mystery the way that like diabolique is it reminds me of a there's a mystery science theory through thousand film that i'm obsessed with that has a lot of the same uh plot elements called the screaming skull it's an old crappy 1950s film it's it's not old women it's a it's a man who sort of murdered his wife who's married a new woman who he's going to obviously clearly going to murder and he's gaslighting her to believe that the ghost of the first wife is haunting the house and it's it's both very eerie and atmospheric and the most boring turgid piece of crap you've ever seen but i'm kind of obsessed with it it's the kind of movie that's an actor the actor who plays one of the cops at the end of what happened whatever happened to baby jane plays the like the, the town reverend in this movie so like that's my that's my tenuous point of connection there to bring these to bring this movie up is but I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's incredibly dumb and turgid and boring, but it also is weirdly smart. Like it's a movie that invokes Henry James at some at some points. Like it's it's a strange strange film, but I feel like that that template right. Like somebody in a house maybe of possibly unstable mental state being slowly like driven insane for nefarious reasons by somebody else that that template it's just a works good really time great. to me the template works great all right well i guess we won't keep our audiences locked inside this haunted mansion for much longer how about we give them one more thing every episode we run out with one more thing that's something we've been enjoying or whatever since the previous episode i'll go first i'm joshua ray i'm at crispy retinas on i think at this point instagram <laughs> and letterbox i even got rid of the threads i'm like it's bullshit i don't need this my one more thing is by a band i've like endorsed their previous album that's big thief Last year, they put out a double album called Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. Just, you know, board soup that evokes quite a bit. <laughs> um, they have had a song called Vampire Empire that has been a staple of their live shows. And they have finally put out a recording of it. And I think it's probably one of the great um, songs. And I'll put in a little bit of it here it's it's both pretty typical of big thieves thing which is you know kind of bluegrass inflected indie rock mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of screaming about emotion but also there's a great craft to the songwriting here this is a song about being absolutely enraptured with someone or something until it kind of kills you. But it is both uh, intimate and anthemic. I think that's the best way to describe what they do. If you like this song, go back and check out Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. There's a B-side to it called Born for Loving You that is also very excellent. So, yeah, that's my one more thing. What about you, Andrew? Well, I don't have a ton, but I'm going to pivot off of my recommendation for last week. I talked about the the new computer RPG that everybody's playing, Baldur's Gate 3. Hey, guess what? I played it. You played it. I it? played it. Aiden said, "Do you want to play this with me?" And I was like, "No, absolutely not." So it is a fun I'm, like play with your it, partner. It was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fun. But pivoting off that, I started to get nostalgic for some of my old D and D books. And unfortunately, most of my old D and D books are long gone. I sold them in a garage sale ages and ages ago, or just sold them off piece by piece on eBay. So I don't really have that part of my 
old hobby anymore. But there's a great website that I've used occasionally called Drive Through RPG. And this is a digital publishing platform for tabletop role-playing games. What's really extraordinary about it is on the one hand, it's a it's a good resource if for, for like contemporary gaming that's not Dungeons and Dragons. Like if you want any kind of like indie or lesser known RPG, a lot of a lot of them are publishing, sort of cross-publishing in print and also digitally in PDF form on Drive-Thru RPG, which is really nice. Not everybody has, RPG books tend to be really expensive. Not everybody has $40 to blow on a big hardcover book to start a new game. So I like the idea that you can sort of go out and find these little lesser known RPGs on there for, and get them in digital format, which are also easy, incidentally easier to reference if you happen to be a game master. What I really love about them is that they, I don't know if there's some deal with the current owners of Dungeons and Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, they pretty much have every single historical Dungeons and Dragons game available for pennies on the dollar in terms of like getting access to the PDFs. So I downloaded a couple old classic books, the source books that I really loved about the Baldur's Gate 3 setting, Forgotten Realms, just so I could peruse them and refresh my memory about some things. And it was uh, a cool cool trip down memory lane to be able to pay like six bucks and get a 120-page book that chock full of cool D- crunchy D&D stuff that I remember from 30 years ago. So for both, I do highly recommend it. They're really easy to use. You can create an account and log in and it's all verified via email and pay for PayPal or whatever you want. I highly, and your copy that you download is like watermarked invisibly to you. So that's your copy. So I highly recommend Drive-Thru RPG, spelled exactly like it sounds, .com for digital tabletop RPG stuff, both vintage stuff that you want to reconnect with and contemporary indie stuff. Very cool. And if the people want to play with you, where do they find you? <laughs> they do not want to play with me. But if they want to read my stuff, you can find it at thetakeup.com. Also, I'm in Letterboxd, Instagram, and Blue Sky, and a few other places. Very cool. And you can find all of us at the take up. All right. That's our first episode in queer coded series of are you gonna do that every films time? that are queer coded? It's certainly easier right now, but we're we're gonna try. All right, up next, Andrew's pick. Andrew, what's your pick? I think it's the I believe it's 2010 vampire film Let the Right One In, directed Ooh. by Thomas Alfredson. A so I think feel like that was a big, pretty big art house hit at the time. I'm not sure it was remade a few years ago in America. It's a Swedish film it was remade in America a few years later. I'm not sure how lasting its legacy is, but it's a film that I absolutely love. I think it's one of like the great horror films of the 21st century. So excited to re- excited to revisit. Very it. well thought of, and I think there's a small cult around it. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. I can't wait to rewatch it. Maybe I'll watch the Matt Reeves one too. <laughs> yeah. I think Thomas Alfredson, like the snowman, just like permanently destroyed Thomas Alfredson's And it's so career. it's so terrible because Taylor Tinker, right. Soldier Spy is so great. Uh, we'll let, just let the, save it. Save it. Yeah, yeah we'll talk save about it. it. Save it. All right. Well, I want to thank our partners at Cinema St. Louis. You can find information about them at cinemastlouis.org. And of course, our lovely editor, Jessica Pierce, and our social media manager, Kayla McCullough. And until our next episode, hush, hush, swish, wash, hush, hush, swish, hush, Like the Thought that the original title is whatever happened to Cousin Charlotte. What the fuck? Hush, hush, swish, Charlotte? It has to be the worst title. Like it looks cool.